All right. Uh, before we even dig in tonight, I have a quick introduction question for you. So it's a little activity. I promise you it's the only time I'm going to make you raise your hand. Raising your hand in church can be weird for some people. But here's a question for you. Participate. By the show of hands, how many of you have ever met a Christian? Yeah, right? Like, all of your hands should be up because statistically speaking, all of you have met a Christian. 70% approximately of the United States claims Christianity. Just shy of it. 65% of the United States claims Christianity. And if you're from Iowa, which many of you are, 77% of Iowa claims Christianity. So odds are, if you're in this room, especially being in a church, if you're from the United States or have been in the United States, and or you've been in Iowa, which you're here, don't know if you knew that, uh, you've probably met a Christian. But the weird thing is, is like, do we even know what the word Christian means? Like, have you guys ever actually looked into what does the word Christian mean? Probably not. Here's the definition. Follower of Jesus. To, to call yourself a Christian is to say, I am a follower of Jesus. And when it was used in biblical times, it was actually a mocking tone. It was people from the outside who obviously hated Jesus, and they were saying, that person's a Christian. Meaning, like, they think they're a little Christ. They think they're like Jesus. And it was a, a mocking tone. And so, you're telling me, okay, think about this. You're telling me 65% of America or 75% of Iowa are actually little Christ's? You think so? Like, think about the people you've interacted with, right? Are they thinking of other people more than themselves? Are they moving towards the outcast, the hurting? Are they forgiving radically? Are they loving? Are they sacrificing? Are they people that actually say, God, I want what you want more than what I want? Probably not. And that's why, unfortunately, a lot of people that come in these doors and say, man, I don't, I don't do this Christianity thing. Because they look at Christians and they say, you are hypocrites. You're hypocrites. You claim to be a Christian, but I don't even see Jesus in you. And the problem is, most people that claim Christianity don't know what they're claiming when they say, I'm a Christian. Because they don't know that when they say, I'm a Christian, I'm also saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. And so... If we go back to this first question, I said, how many of you have ever met a Christian? All of you raise your hands. The question is, how do you know they're a Christian? Okay, you said you've met a Christian. How do you know they're a Christian? Because what I did not ask is, how many of you have met someone who claims to be a Christian? See the difference there? So you can't walk out these doors tonight and say, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what happened tonight. People would be like, what? You went to church. Cool. No, I actually heard Jason Tatum from the Boston Celtics bring a sermon. Can you believe it? Because I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but like I can claim to be Jason Tatum all I want. I'm not Jason Tatum, right? And so the question is not what do people claim to be, but how do you actually know that they are who they say they are? And so let's take this a little bit deeper, all right? It's not just about out there. How do you know if you're a Christian? 
And if I backed up and I said, are you a Christian? Some of you might say, no, I'm not. And I just want to say, I'm glad you're here, honestly. I don't, I don't love that answer for you, and we'll get there when we start talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. But I'm glad you're here, and my prayer is that you would just lean into what God might be teaching you tonight. But I think for a lot of people coming in this room, if I said, are you a Christian? A lot of people would say, yeah, I am. And so this is where I tell you, this is for you, okay? This is not for the person sitting to your right or to your left. This is not for your roommate who's sitting back in his dorm room being a cultural Christian. They're not in the room. You are. You're in the seat. I'm talking to you. How do you know you're a Christian? That's where we're going tonight. This is, this is personal and this is practical. So we're going we're gonna to start our next book series. We're in the book of Titus. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up. We're in Titus. It's the 17th book of the New Testament. It's a long ways in there, all right? Use your index if you need to. If you've been coming here on Sundays, we've been in Hebrews. If your Bible is marked in Hebrews, just go a little bit to the left. You're going to run right into it, all right? Uh, We're just looking at the first four verses tonight, so I should only preach for about 45 minutes. We should be good. Um, That's a joke. I hope I don't. Uh, it should be relatively, should be relatively uh, simple to cover these four verses. And if we're going to open up to a new book, what's actually really important to know is, like, what's going on? Who's writing? Who are they writing to? What's the purpose? And the good news for us, and for me especially, is it's all included in our text tonight. So I don't have to give you the introduction and then open up the text. We're just going to walk through it together. So question number one, who is writing the book of Titus. Titus 1, verse 1, says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's who's writing this letter. A guy by the name of Paul. Anybody heard of him before? Anybody? Okay. You didn't have to raise your hand, but thank you for doing that. See, I didn't make you. You just did it. Uh, Paul, okay. This is a man who we initially meet in the book of Acts. He's going by his Hebrew name at this time of Saul. And Saul is this religious zealot. He's actually a religious extremist because he grew up in a Jewish home that took the law incredibly serious. Both of his parents were Pharisees, meaning they followed not only written law, they followed oral tradition. They tried adding to all the good works that they could do by trying to live to a T. And so by the time Saul, at that time, is 13 years old, he goes off to school to essentially earn his master's in the Jewish law. And at the same time, the Jesus movement has been happening, the disciples have been raised up, and he hates it. He hates the idea of this Messiah, this this Jesus guy who claims to be the king of the Jews, he can't stand it. And here's what he's doing, Acts 7 and 8. He is a part of killing Christians. As Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is being killed, Saul is standing on the sidelines holding his his garments, right? And then we see something miraculous happen. Acts 9, Saul is out to hunt some more Christians. He is out to end the movement of Christianity. And he's on the road to Damascus, and boom, who does he meet? Jesus. Jesus speaks to him and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul goes blind. 
And God tells another man by the name of Ananias, he says, here's what's happening. Saul has been chosen as an instrument of God. And he's going to come to you and you need to tell him what I just told you. So Saul ends up at Ananias' house and Ananias is like, hey, God told me that you were chosen and that you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Saul is no longer blind and he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ on that very day. It's amazing. You guys, that's the God we serve. It's Saul, a killer of Christians, becoming a missionary. And this is personal to me. I think about who I was when I was your age. It's like, I was the the drunken, lustful moron who wanted nothing to do with God, but God is like, you know what? Jordan Howell, that's who I'm going to choose. I want you to follow me. That God would shed his grace on me. I look at this room, and I don't know where you've been or what you've done, but I'm like, you guys, if God can do that to Saul, if God can do that to Jordan Howell, he can do that for you. That's the God we serve. And so Paul is writing this letter, and it says, This is his description, okay? A servant of God. That means that he's not speaking on his own accord, okay? He's attaching himself to God, and he's saying, I don't just say what I want. I don't just do what I want. I follow the master. God didn't just save me. He is God. And so I'm I'm the servant here. He is the master. He's calling the shots. And then he says this, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So when you say, who wrote, who wrote the book of Titus? It's actually interesting to say, man, it was Paul's hand that wrote it. But it was actually the Spirit of God guiding it. Right? Like, to be an apostle means to, to write with authority. To be chosen by God to be his mouthpiece. And so... When we look at this letter, it's not just the writing from a man named Paul. This is the Spirit of God speaking to Titus and speaking to you and me. That's amazing. So Paul writes this letter, and he's writing on behalf of God himself. But who is he writing to? You actually have to look down in verse 4, which says, To Titus. Shocker, maybe. (laughs) To Titus, my true child in a common faith. So what we know about Titus is that he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish like Paul, comes from a different background. And what likely happened is that Titus was led to the knowledge of the gospel by Paul. Paul shared the gospel with Titus, likely, and led him to believe in Jesus. How do we know that? Well, he calls him his true child in a common faith. And that's an an indication that there's some spiritual relationship happening there. Now, I do just want to like pause here and say, straight up, don't do this with people, okay? Like, if you share the gospel with them and they repent and believe, not like, now you are my son. Like, weird. (laughs) Don't do that, all right? I don't know if it was this year or last year, but there's a group of gals that Sabrina was discipling, and they called themselves Breen's Babies. (laughs) Just please stop, okay? That's That's my one ask. Please don't do that. It makes everybody uncomfortable, especially the person that's being called the mom, okay, or the dad. Don't do it. Anyways, I digress. Titus goes from being this, this young infant believer, in a sense. Paul shares the gospel with him. Titus comes to believe. 
He starts to mature as Paul brings him along on missionary journeys with him. And actually, Titus becomes a missionary himself. So as we enter into this book, it's actually because Paul and Titus went on a missionary trip to an island called Crete. Okay, Crete was a large island right off the coast of Greece, and it had several ports that were very strategic. This was a great place to plant churches. So Paul and Titus stop there. They plant churches. They share the gospel. And then what Paul does is he's like, all right, Titus, you got it, homie. Run the show. And he takes off. But he leaves Titus there with a purpose, right? He's like, hey, you do got it. But what you need to do is you need to strengthen the church. You need to to keep this thing going. You need to bring some order to what's going on here. Because Crete is jacked up. Okay? So he leaves Titus behind and he's writing this letter later to say, this is what I need you to do. And he's not writing just to say, hey, what's up? Hope you're doing well. Care about you. Do you see the Tyreek Hill trade? Like, he's not doing that. Because in the first century, to receive a letter from somebody was like to receive treasure. Right? Like, paper and pen, like the commodities that you needed to write a letter were so rare that if you're going to write a letter to somebody, you're going to say, what I'm writing matters. You're writing on purpose and with purpose because this is a rarity. And so he writes with purpose, and we actually see that in the rest of verse 1. So circle back up. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is why he's writing, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Simply put, Paul is writing for the sake of Christians He's saying, man, I want Christians' faith to increase and to grow and to spur on. And I want them to make a connection between their belief and their behavior. You see that when he says, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with or leads to godliness. And here's why he's saying this. On the island of Crete, there are a bunch of false teachers. There are people that are coming into the church and they're pushing different religious myths and traditions and rituals and they're saying, hey, as long as you do this, nothing else matters. As long as you do this purity ritual, you're fine. Then, as long as you participate in that, you can be just like the rest of the world. Really, nothing else matters. And so he is coming with strong language to say, we need to correct this. Okay, Crete was an incredibly pagan culture. In the ancient world, they were known for immorality. We're talking treachery, like mass violence, incredible greed, and sexual immorality abounding. And the the reality for us, you guys, is this is not just for Titus and the Cretans in AD 66. This is for you and me in Cedar Rapids, Iowa in the year of 2022. Like, think about it. Think about how much falsehood is out there. Think about the church in America. When you have people who show up on Sunday and say, yep, I'm going to sing a couple songs, I'll be here for an hour, but then I'm going to cut out of here, and guess what their life is full of? Pride. Selfishness. It's full of greed and gossip. It's full of anger and addiction. 
I think of college ministries where people come and worship on a Thursday night and they leave here and they go and get drunk and they have sex. I think of people who claim Christianity on their lips and then they go swear all the time. They have no control over their tongue. People who lift their eyes to heaven as they sing and then they go home and they lift their eyes down on a screen to look at pornography. That's what's happening in our midst, okay? Not to mention, there are people who, when it comes to Christianity and truth, they're just lazy. On one hand, there's people who just say, oh yeah, I don't want that. And there's other people who are just lazy enough to say, I really don't care. I don't care because that takes too much work to figure out what's expected of me. And let alone to take a stand for a strong conviction. You're just going to sit back, you're going to be comfortable, and you're going to let people walk all over you. And you're going to say everything goes because the reality is you're lazy. You don't care about the truth. And that was, that's what was happening there, and that's what's happening in our church today. And so Paul is writing to say, you guys, belief and behavior have to be connected. You can't claim to be a Christian and not live like a follower of Jesus. That's the primary emphasis, not only of this text, but really of all of the book of Titus, is this connection between belief and behavior. And when we focus in here on the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, I want to just pause and talk about our cultural moment, okay? We live in a day of expressive individualism. Anybody know what that means? Okay. It's this idea of truth is what you make it, right? Like, live your truth, you know? Don't let anybody tell you what's actually true because what you feel, expressive individualism says, what you feel is truth. It comes from within, okay? I'm going to squash that like a bug right now and tell you that that is a bunch of crap, okay? Simple example, two plus two equals what? Four. four. If you said anything other than four, you're a dweeb, okay? <laughs> two plus two equals four. I don't care who you are, where you've been. I don't care what country you live in, what cultural background you come from. Two plus two equals four around the globe. That is true. It's an absolute truth, okay? Another example, this is a little bit of a side tangent, but if you know anything about me, I have poop stories, okay? So anybody, uh, anybody else struggle with like traveling on vacations and pooping in someone else's toilet? You don't have to, okay, hey, if you wanna be vulnerable, just join me, okay? Here's the deal, um, that's me, judge it if you want. Um, even going home to my mom's house, I'm like, oh my gosh, I just can't poop. And I'm eating home-cooked meals, eating good food, and I come back and I'm like, man, I'm constipated. Okay, what am I gonna take? Here's an idea. Um, Drano is good for cleaning out clogged pipes, right? Okay, for those of you who struggle with constipation, how many of you would say, this, this is a good idea for constipation? Oh, you are lying. Okay, I pulled up the label here, real quick. You can put it on the screen. Okay, right above my fingernail. Okay, it says, harmful if swallowed. Do not taste or swallow. Right above that, it says, like, contact with this causes burns. Yeah, bad idea. First aid, give immediately, then call a poison center. 
Physician or emergency room? Go down a little bit. If swallowed, this is funny, rinse mouth, immediately drink a glass of water or milk. I don't know why that's there. <laughs> okay, but the point is, we all know this is poisonous, okay? You can't sit here and tell me, I don't feel like this is poisonous or I don't think this is poisonous and then drink it and be immune to it. You guys track in here? This is absolute truth. This is poison. If you drink it, you will die. I don't care what you think or what you feel. Absolute truth happens. And so it's funny. It's funny when it's constipation and Drano. But you guys, this is not a joke when we start talking about money and marriage. Right? When we start saying, oh, what is absolute truth when it comes to how you're supposed to spend your money or how God defines marriage? Or if we start talking about sexuality or substance abuse, right? Then what do we think about absolute truth? Because if absolute truth can exist in 2 plus 2 equals 4, or Drano being poison for your body, certainly there has to be absolute truth when we start talking about our sexuality, how we handle our resources, and a general moral ethic, okay? This create-your-own-truth environment is not only irrational, it is destructive. Rates of depression are through the roof, and it is because of this narrative that says, just create your own truth. Because it's not stable, right? Your, your feelings change. And think about how destructive this is, right? We like it when it goes in our favor, and it's like, oh yeah, my own truth today is I'm going to go drink some bush latte. And you might think, cool, I like that rule. But what about the rule where it's like, hey, your dad now says he no longer loves his mom and he's going to walk out on your entire family because he feels like it. You're like, oh, that feels wrong. But he feels like it. Is that his truth? Can we celebrate that? No, we can't. It's destructive. We know that this is wrong, okay? And not to mention wrong, it's lonely. It's a lonely path forward. If all of us create our own truth, none of us can stand on the same ground. None of us can come to the same conclusions because we're all on an island. I say all of that to just simply put before you, we could go on for hours, we don't have it. Truth is not invented. Truth is not, we don't invent it within ourselves. It is given to us. It is revealed to us by God himself. This, this book, this Bible alone, 66 books written by over 40 authors from three continents over a time frame of 1,500 years telling one story without contradiction or error. Okay, there is more manuscript evidence of the Bible than any 10 pieces of classic literature combined. This is the truth of God that he has preserved and has put in front of your very face to say, you don't have to invent truth. I have given you it. It's amazing. And this one story is about a fallen human race. It's created with intimacy with God who chose to go their own way. They wanted nothing to do with God. They decided to be their own rulers and create their own truth. Sound familiar? Guess what? That led to separation from God. God said, you want it your own way? 
You can have your own way. They're kicked out of the presence of God and they're left in need of a savior. They need someone to bring reconciliation, redemption back between them and God and praise Jesus. He is the Messiah. He's the one that this entire Bible is focused on. Jesus Christ, who historically, you guys, nobody is arguing that Jesus actually lived and actually died. Okay? People can attest to that no matter what their religious background is. People believe Jesus the Christ was a real human being who really lived and really died. And I found this out recently as I took an apologetics class. With the best available historical evidence known to scholars, the rational belief is to confirm that Jesus resurrected. Okay, people have all their, their weird plausibility theories that fall short, but if you're just taking a step back and saying, with the most realistic evidence that we have available to us, even non-religious scholars would say, man, the best explanation we have is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And I'm telling you, he did. Jesus actually did raise from the dead. You know how I know that's true? He changed me. <laughs> right? Historical evidence is one thing, but it's another thing to say, I've experienced this. Jesus has resurrected. He is alive today. He makes people that once were dead alive. He makes people that once were hopeless, full of hope. That's what he did for me. That's what he's done for countless people in this room. Jesus is alive. And so when we talk about this truth, it is the best news ever. And we get to see that in these next couple verses. Here's what, here's what he says, Paul to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Three reasons why this truth is the best news ever. Number one, the truth of the gospel gives us the hope of eternal life. I just talked about that. Eternal life. This isn't just life forever. Okay, when you start thinking eternity, you think about like quantity. I'm here to tell you, everybody's going to live forever. The problem is, the majority of people will spend forever, eternity separated from God. But the good news is, you don't have to. Because Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with him, and not just one day in heaven, but today. This eternal life is not just a quantity thing, it's a quality thing. He is saying, you want a relationship with the creator of the universe? Okay, stop trusting in yourself and trust in the finished work of what Jesus has already done for you. That's what this grand narrative of the Bible has been all about this entire time, your need for someone to actually act on your behalf because you can't reach God. The hope of eternal life. Number two, the truth of the gospel is from God, who never lies. When you start talking about creating your own truth, guess what? You're a liar. I am too. We lie to ourselves all the time. You are a liar. You cannot be trusted when it comes to your own feelings, your own emotions. 
You deceive yourself all the time. The good news is the truth isn't up to you. It's up to God, and he never lies. Cool little context thing here. The root word for, for Crete, this island where they're at, actually means liar, okay? This was a culture full of liars. They were known for lying all the time. And one of the cool like Greek mythology things, they thought that Zeus was born on their island. And Zeus was a Greek god that many of them like followed. And Zeus was known as a liar. He was known as a god that would seduce women and trick people and do whatever he had to do to get his way. And Paul is telling Titus, and the Spirit of God is telling you and me, our God is not like that. He doesn't lie. He is unchanging. He doesn't change his mind. He is trustworthy. And then lastly, the truth of the gospel has been promised before the ages began, right? It's been promised. It's been revealed. It's been revealed in creation. It's been revealed in the scriptures. It's been revealed in the person and work of Christ and proclaimed. The gospel is still proclaimed today. It's being proclaimed right now. When kings and kingdoms have tried to shut down this Christianity movement, guess what happens? It spreads. The gospel can't be silenced. Why? Because it's, it's been promised since before time ever began. It started with God. It's going to end with God. It's been revealed. We've already seen it flesh itself out. And now, even today, to the ends of the earth, the gospel aims to be proclaimed to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And you see, Paul has this, this common greeting as he writes in the New Testament. If you just start reading your Bible, you're going to see this time and time again. At the end of verse 4, so he, he obviously says, To Titus, my true child and the common faith. He says this, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. There is the simple gospel in verse 4. Three words, grace and peace. You see, every religion known to man outside of Christianity is not grace and peace, but is peace and grace. What I mean by that is, Every other religion on the face of the earth will tell you what you need to do to stand before God is you need to earn peace with him. You need to do the right things. You need to clean up your act. And hopefully, just hopefully, God will be gracious enough when you die to say, sure, come on in. That is not the gospel of Christianity. Okay? The gospel of Christianity, the truth that we are saying we have knowledge of is this, grace and peace. That God saw you when you were far off, when you were a sinner, you were dead in sin, you could do nothing to pursue him, but he says, that is my beloved child. This is who I love, this is who I want, and I'm going to die in their place, even though they want nothing to do with me. Grace in itself means unmerited favor. To say, God is not sitting back waiting for you to clean up your act. He's already paid the price for you. And now he's saying, if you stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, not on my own accord because of what Jesus has done in my place. Because he died the death I should have and because he made me new. Guess what? 
you have peace with God. Peace with God is not something to obtain or to earn. It's something that's given to you. That is the simple gospel. Grace and peace. But in so many ways, grace and peace makes great connection to knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. This grace that God would actually open your eyes to understand this gospel. That is grace. For you to even be able to, in your heart of hearts, say, I believe that. That is God's grace to you. But then, it actually leads to peace, which means reconciliation, like redemption between us and God, which means if I have received grace, I also am a partaker of peace. I'm keeping the peace in sense. So Paul is telling Titus and God is telling us, I want Christians faith to be solid and built up, and I want their beliefs and their behavior to match up. So, if you claim you're a follower of Jesus, you want to be a follower of Jesus, I'm telling you, he is Savior. He really did live, he really did die, he really did rise again. But if you proclaim Jesus as your Savior, true knowledge not just in your head, but in your heart, actually says, Jesus, if you died for me, I will live for you. I'm actually going to follow you. You are trustworthy. If you would die for me, surely the only reasonable response is for me to live for you. And you guys, this is personal for me. Like, I grew up in a quote-unquote Christian home and called myself a Christian my entire life. It wasn't until I was 21 years old at rock bottom that I actually understood that I was claiming a religion that I had nothing to do with. And it wasn't until someone actually shared the good news of the gospel with me that it wasn't about my performance that I recognized, oh wow, I never knew that. <laughs> I never knew that if I died today, my eternal destiny was not based on my performance, but is based upon what Jesus already did for me. I was a hypocrite. I mean, I joke you not, I had several Christian tattoos before I ever followed Jesus. And that's a part of my testimony now. People see Christian tattoos, and I think, by the grace of God, he knew that I would follow him even when I got him as a 16-year-old. They started as marks on my body that made people think that I was a Christian. Because I cared more about what people thought about me than what God thought about me. But this wasn't just a back then thing either. I don't question my salvation today, but I am challenged as I enter into a text like this and I say, the knowledge of the truth, knowing the gospel is going to lead to godliness, right? I'm like, Jordan, what is happening in your life? Like, where, where are you claiming belief that you're not behaving? And I'll give you three quick ones, okay? James 1, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I have two kids at home. You guys, this has been a major issue for me. Slow to anger. Man, I have not been showing God to my kids and how quickly I've been getting angry. That is not living out my beliefs. If I say, God, you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, I should say, God, I want to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I want to show my kids that. Philippians 2 has two different challenges in it, okay? In humility, count others more significant than myself. How often do I desire to serve people? 
instead of serve myself. Not enough. I'm telling you that. I can get a text message and pretty quickly think, this person is inconveniencing me. <laughs> They're getting in my way of doing what I want to do. Right? I can even look at an opportunity like this to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and be like, oh man, I wish Duke basketball was playing at a different time so I could watch them. Like, that's how jacked up I am. That's just part of my sin nature that I'm like, this is not lining up with who Jesus is. You keep reading in Philippians 2, it says this, do all things without grumbling. Man, complaining issue. But the reality is, God's grace that saved me is the same grace that's sanctifying me today. It's the same grace that says, Jordan, I'm not giving up on you, but I'm also not going to leave you as you are, right? I don't want you to keep being the dad that's, that's getting angry with your kids. I'm a good God. Look, how, look at the good father I've been to you. You can be patient with your kids, right? Why are you grumbling? Jordan, look at all the blessings I've given you. Like, you don't have to grumble anymore. Even just think about the fact that the God of the universe chose you and made you his own. Like, is that enough to be content? Yeah. Man, stop grumbling. And Jesus came to serve. He died on a cross, right? He didn't come to be the high and mighty, bow down to me, get your act together, no, he came to lead as a humble servant, to lay his life down for the flock. And so for me, it's like, yeah, surely I can serve my wife because Christ served me. And if I want to show Jesus to my wife, I'm going to start serving her. I'm going to start cooking more meals. I'm going to start doing the dishes. I'm going to clean up around the house. You can put it this way, really simple. Knowing the gospel leads to growing in godliness. And when I say knowing, I'm not talking about in your head. I'm talking about in your heart. Knowing the gospel, calling yourself a Christian, leads to growing in godliness. Or you could say it this way, a life saved by the gospel is a life shaped by the gospel. A life saved by the gospel is a life shaped by the gospel. And as we'll see, this is the good life. You know, our, our series, Titus, is called The Good Life, and The Good Life is, is about growing in godliness. It's about seeing how this good news of Jesus Christ actually impacts all of what we do, all of life. It's not to be put in a box on a Thursday night or a Sunday morning. This good news of Jesus Christ is meant to bleed into all that we are and all that we do. But when I say, man, knowing the gospel leads to growing in godliness, what I, what I also want you to know is that the goal is growth. The goal is not perfection. Like, if you set your eyes on perfection, you are constantly going to be so disappointed, and you will bring into question all the time, oh my gosh, do I actually know Jesus? Oh, I keep messing up all the time. You guys, we are a sinful people, and we are constantly in need of a Savior. And so, make sure your aim is growing in godliness to say, man, you still need grace today just like you did the first day you placed your faith in Jesus. For me, that was 2013, and that's something I have a prayer literally taped on my desk upstairs. And in that it says, Lord, remind me that I am just in as much need of grace today as I was on March 13th, 2013. Because it's true. I still need his grace today. So 
We got a lot to cover in the book of Titus. I think it's going to bring about a lot of challenges, but as for this week, four simple things you can do in regards to the truth, okay? Truth leading to godliness. Number one, you can trust in the truth. Really simple. To trust in the truth is to stop trusting in yourself. To turn to God and to say, God, you define truth. You are truth. You are, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The only way I can stand before God is because of what you've done for me. That's what it means to turn and to trust in the truth, to believe in Jesus, to take it from your head to your heart, okay? Number two, to turn into the truth, to turn, to open up your Bible, to begin searching the scriptures for direction in life. Because if God is telling you, hey, I saved you, I want you to live for me, and you say, great, I want to do it, how do I do it? He's like, I'm telling you, right? If you want a life that accords with godliness, you kind of need to know what God is asking of you. And so here's what you can do. Start reading your Bible. And don't view this as a, as a, here's what I have to do, here's what I can't do. This isn't a list of like moral obligations and things to avoid. Like this is an opportunity for you to have a relationship with the God of the universe who speaks, who is actually speaking to you and saying, this is not a guessing game, but I'm telling you, this is how you can experience me. Number three, sit in the truth. Sit in the truth. This has more to do with meditating, right? Like actually soaking in the gospel. To wake up every day, to look yourself in the mirror and to say, God, I am just as much in need of grace today as I was yesterday. Thank you that you are a good God that's patient with me. Thank you, Jesus, that you lived, you died, you rose again to make me a new creation. And you know I, you know I need you. Thank you. Thank you that my relationship with God is not up to me, but it's up to you. Like, to actually meditate on the truth of the gospel. And then from that place, submit to the truth to let your dwelling in the gospel turn into doing for the gospel. Say, man, God, as I've, as I've sat in the truth, as I've soaked in how good you are, Jesus, in light of what you've done for me, my only appropriate response is to obey you. I want to follow you. You're a God worthy to be followed. So trust in the truth. Turn to the truth. Sit in the truth. Submit to the truth. I don't know what, this, what, what your step is, but as I think about what this has looked like, you guys, um, this year, think of several students, um, many on our student leadership team who have been doing this. And in some cases, it's really cool. <laughs> like, I think of student athletes who are like living on teams of people who also claim Christianity, but Christianity looks different when you're taking Jesus seriously. And teammates are taking notice. They're like, wait a second, you actually read your Bible? Like, help me understand. I've never read my Bible before. Or like, I know you pray. Can you like pray for me? Like, in some cases, people are leaning in. It's like, man, true Christianity sh shines, right? People recognize. But the sad reality is, in many cases, people also recognize true Christianity and they shun it. Think of several students who have gone home for breaks and they're living out their faith in front of parents who claim Christianity but want nothing to do with Jesus. And these parents are like, 
Surely you must be in a cult. You know, someone must have brainwashed you because you're reading your Bible all the time and you want to go to church. And what's up with that? Like, why do you want to move across the world to share the gospel? That makes no sense. It's like, I don't know, maybe because Jesus said in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. Maybe I'm trying to follow Jesus, okay? This is happening. People that are living out their faith are being told that they live in a cult. They participate in a cult. And here's why that's happening. Because people that are living cultural Christianity don't want to face the fact that their entire belief system, so they say, is a lie. Okay? True Christianity follows Jesus. That is true Christianity. And guess what? I am here to commend you. Those of you who have followed Jesus when it's incredibly hard, when you have faced opposition from your parents, you have looked for old friends in the face who have kicked you out of the friend group because you followed Jesus, I'm telling you, keep going. Because one day, you will stand before God, and here's what he's going to say to you. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. That's what we have to look forward to. So I'm going to pray for us. Uh, we're going to enter into worship, and we get to respond to this God who's given us this great truth. So pray with me. God, you, you are true. You are faithful. God, you never lie. Even just thinking about the scriptures, God, that they are God-breathed, that you would give us this book, that we get to encounter you, what a gift. Jesus, that you are unchanging. You are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That, man, even when we lack faith, when we screw up, your love is steadfast. It abounds. Your grace is new. Your mercies are fresh for us each and every morning. And God, I pray for students in this room tonight that you would grip their hearts, that this knowledge of the gospel would not just become a hypothetical theory in their head, but would become a reality in their hearts. That the knowledge of the truth would accord with or lead to godliness. And God, we don't want that for our own sake. That we long to follow you, Jesus. We long even more for your name to be made great. That we would actually be able to get out of the way. And as you say in Matthew 5, that we would just become a city on a hill. a light that shines before other people, not for them to look at us and say, wow, look how great they are, but no. That as we live lives of godliness, that it wouldn't be people glorifying us, but they would be glorifying our Father in heaven. God, that this knowledge of the truth, this gospel goodness would expand in our city, on our campuses, across the state of Iowa, across the nation, and across the world, because Jesus, you are worthy to be worshiped. So um, even now, God, as we think about how we long to see other people worship you, prepare our hearts to worship you here and now, we pray in your name. Amen.